The views on this podcast belong uniquely and solely to the mouths from which they emanate. If you say something in your community and it's not in the dictionary, that doesn't mean it's not a good Louisiana French word. And that's very important for people to understand. Hi, and welcome to this week's episode of the Weekly Linguist Podcast. I am Jarrett, and I am your host this week. So this week, we are continuing our conversation about Louisiana French. As a matter of fact, the previous three episodes and the next three episodes were all recorded on the same day. I literally left Dr. Barry Anselet's house in Scott, Louisiana, and drove over to the home of Amanda LaFleur in Lafayette, Louisiana, to continue the conversation with her about Louisiana French. So our discussion with Dr. Anselet kind of set Louisiana French in a socio-historical context. But the upcoming discussion with Amanda Lafleur is more on the actual grammar and uniqueness of Louisiana French. So I tried to cut the discussion with Amanda Lafleur into three parts that would correlate with basically three themes. And the first third of the conversation, we spent about 30 minutes, give or take, talking about the development of the Louisiana French Dictionary. And uh, that's the episode for today. I think you'll find it very interesting. And in the next two episodes, we'll be getting into the actual grammar and uniqueness of Louisiana French. I was joined in this interview with a colleague, uh, Nathan Went uh, from Tulane, who is at the moment uh, teaching classes at the University of Virginia. Although he doesn't appear in the first episode of the three episodes, you definitely will hear him asking very interesting questions in the second and third episodes. One of the things that struck me as I was talking to Amanda and also re-listening to the episode in order to edit it and, and get it ready for publication was the idea that so many things that occur in certain situations for certain languages are not unique to those languages and those situations. Some of the things that we talk about are, um, how do you say, how would I say, generalizable or at least repeatable around the world. Um, some of the concepts that uh, we talk about as far as, you know, developing lexicons and uh, different um, strategies for writing words and language and power dynamics and things like this. Um, these are questions that, that, that lexicographers all over the world ask themselves. So there's a lot here that's unique to Louisiana, but there's a lot that's not unique to Louisiana. And I think that's one of the beauties of human language. So as usual, on the website, weeklylinguist.com, this is episode 18. You'll be able to go to the website and pull up the, the topics that we talked about, but also the words, the French words that are mentioned in the episode. And then there's a whole list of resources that we talk about in the episode. Interestingly, to this particular conversation, you'll see at the bottom of the show notes on the website some of the master's theses that we mentioned in the beginning of this episode. There's a whole list of master's theses that were done between, uh, let's see, 1935 to 1949 that were all very, very similar in attempting to describe the variation in French from the different parishes of Louisiana back in the 1930s and 40s. Um, just to remind our listeners, a parish in Louisiana is 
what any other state would call a county, basically. We're the only state in the Union that has parishes. But anyway, I hope you enjoy the episode, and I hope you send me your comments and thoughts, suggestions, and ideas for future episodes. And without further ado, our discussion with Amanda LaFleur. All right, well, welcome to uh, this episode of the Weekly Linguist Podcast. This is a special episode, and we have two special guests today. Uh, One of them is my friend and colleague, Nathan Wendt, who is at Tulane with me and has already finished. Done. So he's one up on me, but he's, uh, Nathan studies Louisiana Creole and is right now uh, teaching classes at the University of Virginia. And um, so he's here to, to help us talk to Amanda LaFleur, who is a very special person to me. I met Amanda when I was doing my master's work at LSU and um, she, I, I remember right where I, I would walk by and Amanda would be sitting right there. <laughs> and uh just always very open and kind and just a warm spirit and uh, it's a it's a pleasure to be able to talk to her now if you and i'll put this on the show notes but amanda is one of the compilers i don't like to say authors of a dictionary compilers we, editors we say yes i yeah, think we say editors editors of the louisiana french dictionary and um along with Tom Klingler, Barry Ansley, uh, Richard Guidry, uh, Kevin Rotet, Tamara Lindner, um, Albert Waldman, of course, Albert and Kevin, who right. took kind of lead roles in this, and right. uh, the rest of us who were the team. Let's see, is there someone else we're missing? Um, Dominique Rion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, it's a, it a, a, a dictionary is not a, a no. yeah, it's a, it's a big baby to carry. It was published in... 2006? No, 2009. Actually, it was published, uh, it came out in December of 2009, and you will find some some of them that actually have a 2009 copyright, others that have a 2010. I don't know what the how that happened, but I, I remember it clearly because it was right at the end of the year. It was the, it was the big Christmas present of the time. Well, I, I just did an interview which you've probably already heard if you're subscribed to the podcast with Barry Ancelet and um, who is also one of the uh, editors, compilers of the dictionary. But I told him a story. I said, you know, where I work at McNeese, the hurricane destroyed the building. So we're not able to, for a good while, we were not able to return to to our offices or anything. Mm -hmm. And I got an email from uh, the chair of the department said, Jared, if you need anything out of the language lab, you better go get it now. This is your only chance. And I was in Baton Rouge in New Orleans, and I said, look, all I need is make sure you grab my Louisiana French dictionary. <laughs> <laughs> Anything else is replaceable, but that, I want that dictionary. So, so oh, yeah. Glad it, to um, hear that. <laughs> it, but it was, uh, I remember talking to you about this uh, when I was at LSU. It was a huge amount of work. It was. As any, um, uh, if any of you saw The Professor and the Madman, um, you, you the the work of dictionary uh, building, if you will, uh, if it's do, if it's done in a systematic scientific fashion, is a work of a lifetime. And uh, we originally took on this project. Um, I think we had a sort of a three year target to get it done. And um, the good news was that there was still so much of the language left 
that we we recognize that after those three years, we still had a lot of collecting to do. That was even after sort of inventorying um, works and lexical works that had already been done. In total, I think we worked on it, um, I believe we counted 11 years from beginning to, to end. A lot of this gray hair. A lot of the data that you had was, was transcriptions of oral recordings. Is that right? Right. Well, you yeah. want to you want to create uh, ideally, uh, you want to create a corpus from which you can which you can work. So there was there was work done inventorying, as I said, lexical works, little collections of expressions that had been done in previous years in master's theses and that sort of work. And then there was, uh, of course, uh, Father Dag. Pardeg's dictionary, which is in, included, all of, all of that is included in our dictionary too. And then we went about, we took those words and went, sort of divided the Louisiana French area and went out looking to, um, to get attestations of certain things to get an idea whether or not words were more regional or more sort of universal, if you will, in, in Louisiana French. I mentioned to you, and I guess I should have known, Amanda knows about this. Well, I don't even know why I asked her. But I came across what I thought was a gem in this old master's thesis from mm-hmm. LSU. And I thought it was unique and special. It was some interesting, uh, I think it was maybe Lafourche Parish or whatever. But it was some interesting things at, at the back about some, some little sayings and some proverbs. But what I realized when I went to looking for it, it seemed to be a one of a, Eight or nine or ten of these that were done. Oh, more than was, that, yeah. I get the impression there was a professor back then that was driving his students or yes. her students to create these. Is that, am I right? Yes. And I would also say after having gone through the, because I actually had looked at quite a few of those when I was doing work on Langage Imagie, when I was working on the, the material that eventually led to uh, Tonin Michien, which is metaphorical language uh, in a you know, collection of that sort of work. And so I looked at those those theses, and of course, what you quickly realize, and and having been recent graduate students, you also know how these work. You you go, you look at what somebody does, and you build upon what they did. So somebody, uh, also, I would guess that um, that say student from Parish X would look at the material that had already been done by one student, right. and then took that list and took it and went to try to right. see if that existed right. in his or her parish, if it had the same meaning, if, if he could get uh, words for it. And of course that is, it was, it was sort of a, it was sort of a, um, an intuitive way of doing what lexicographers do in a big right. sort of more systematic way, which is you get, you start with some list and, and I, you know, I did the same thing when I was even looking for, um, the, the material in Tonami Shia, the metaphorical language, I, I I got figures of speech. I just, you know, got friends to help. Let's make a list of 15. And you go and you talk to one person and you say, have you heard that? Well, we don't say exactly that, but we say this. Oh, and that makes me think, whoa, whoa, whoa. And then you leave and you have 35 expressions. And right. then you go to the next person with your 35 and you leave with 95. And then by the time I had been several months into the project, of course, I, I can remember visiting La Isle de um, uh, down on the bayou, and I, I was at her house for two days, you know, and still didn't cover all the material. Right. Well, I, and I'm, those that have been that have been listening to me on this podcast, I often say my memory is bad. I really do have a bad memory. But it, it, even the titles 
of all of these theses were almost the same. Sure. It was basically sure. they changed it out the parish. <laughs> right. But again, it was it was you know because it was work. it was a system that somebody had, had right. was developing. Yeah. It so, was important yeah. work that got things mm-hmm. documented that needed to be documented. Well, what we wanted to talk to you about today, because we we just interviewed, I just interviewed Barry Onsley, and with him, I talked about how French came to Louisiana, which is you know not as obvious a question as you would as you as some would think. There were several different you know waves and migrations, and you know the the current state, uh, the the development of French in Louisiana. We talked about education. Um, and we talked about Codafield and all of these things. So what we wanted to talk to you about was specifically the grammar of Louisiana French. Okay. And I want to start by asking you this quick question. I feel like I know the answer, but I'm going to get your answer. There's got to be a lot of thought going into whether we say Cajun French or Louisiana French. Mm-hmm. There, Cajun French, quote, quote, would not be an accurate representation of the French as spoken in Louisiana. So you have, what else do you have? So is Louisiana French too large of a term? I just, I wanted you to address that. Well, Louisiana French is my, is the working term that I use. And I've sort of, I've sort of tried to find a happy medium um, that recognizes that, of course, the current usage, the current understanding by the general public and the masses uh, that is that Cajun French is the, is the term that we use to talk about the French spoken in Louisiana. That is a, a, obviously a simplification. But if, for example, in a search engine you don't use the word Cajun, then people might not find you. So um, I have I have kind of walked that line. I've used I I typically, for example, I, I just uh, I'm putting up an app. Uh, in the in Memrise, which is a sort of a little a tool right, for language right, learning, and right. I'm I'm creating a Louisiana French Memrise uh, pack. And uh, what I've done is I've I've called it Louisiana slash Cajun French, and I explain in the little description that it's Louisiana French, also known as Cajun French. It's it, it, the the problem is the problem that it, most of your audience, if they have linguistic leanings, if they're interested in this sort of thing, will recognize that we talk about um, we talk about ethnic labels and we talk about languages, but we often use much of the same vocabulary, and there's confusion. And then if you take a word like Cajun, it's already problematic because some people see Cajun as a genealogical description, people of Acadian descent who live in Louisiana, whereas I think the probably most common first understanding of it is French speakers in Louisiana, which is is vastly, obviously... um, Inadequate because it does not recognize uh, Native Americans, particularly the, the the Homa Nation. It does not recognize people who consider themselves to be petit uh, creole, and if we and, and those kind of run along racial lines. So you have uh, creoles of color, you have white creoles, you have New Orleans creoles, you have Western creoles, um, and so all of those issues are problematic. So Louisiana French. It is probably as close to accurate as it's the most, it's the one that satisfies me or the one that I'm the most comfortable with, if you will. For our listeners who don't know, because there's a misconception or misperception, the Cajuns arrived in the end of the 1700s, but Louisiana had already been French since its founding in the late 1600s. 
So the, 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 the Acadians that arrived from, from Nova Scotia were a group of several groups of, of, of migrants that came to, to Louisiana. And um, so like New Orleans was already here, you know, when they mm-hmm. got here. And it was obviously French. I did my, my master's thesis on the Ursulines, and I remember, you know, there was a lot of, you know, the Ursulines had the advantage of they weren't reproducing, obviously. So they were continuously importing from France, you know. Mm-hmm. And so the letters that, that you get from them, you can see a little bit of an evolution in the language. But, you know, it, it was they, – they had constant reinforcements. So they're not a good example of how the language developed in Louisiana. Right. But, well, and, and I think you, you – you, you, you make a good point there too. We, we, uh, there are people who, who glom on to this, the Acadian story and say, well, that, that's why they speak differently here because they, they went to Nova Scotia and it's those people. Well, it's not that, but even to say that it's not that is insufficient because there were several waves of migration at different periods of time. And of course, the language evolves over time. But there were also several waves of migration, of immigration uh, from different regions of France. And 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 French in France was not a monolith. Far right. from it. Right. Far from it. And then finally, there is uh, also uh, a kind of a, a misunderstanding, a, a misperception that, you know, Louisianians got here and then they had no more uh, contact with France. And of course, there was a lot of this going right. back. There was going back and forth. There were people who sent their children to France to get educated, or if they didn't send their children to France to get, to get educated, they might have brought a French tutor over. There were people who kept coming from French Canada. Um, Which and, is why they called for the Ursulines, by the way. Ah, well, yeah, well, yes. And, and of course, and the, the same thing with, uh, you know, the, um, mm-hmm. uh, Grand Coteau, the sisters, uh, there. Right. Um, so, it it is it's a, it's an extremely messy, complicated, and rich um, history, which makes our language this sort of repository for bits of colonial and uh, post-colonial and um, pre-American. I mean, but there's just a lot of stuff going on here. Well, let me mention one more thing, real quick. So, we're setting the stage for our discussion. When you're talking about the differences between Louisiana French. Let me speak for just a moment about Cajun French or the Acadians. When you're looking at a situation like this, you're talking about a group of people who originally left France, a very specific region of France, mm-hmm. in a time when France, the French language had not been standardized. Mm-hmm. So they were speaking different than people in different regions of France. So you only had, you had one dialect of a very diverse exactly. French, French-speaking country that separated... 400 years ago, and then got put into a new milieu, and then got put into another new milieu. And so you have French then on the continent becoming standardized, the, what they call the Abbe Grégoire, Néantile Patois, trying to get rid of the, the Patois. And, they do, and so they standardize it according to the bon usage. And all of that happens independently from what happens over here. Correct. So what you find is, and correct me where I'm wrong, but what you find is, there's a lot of things that Louisiana or Cajun French does that French doesn't do, but because French used to do, or their dialect in France used to do. That's part and of so it. there's a lot of conservation. And it's not, these are not innovations. When you're talking about the differences, a lot of the times it's the French on the continent that innovated in some ways. Yeah. And then, but you also have a lot of innovations in Louisiana French. 
because they're in a completely new milieu and that demands. Right. And then, so I just wanted to make sure that everybody understands that, you know, we're talking about a language that basically split away from one particular dialect in France 400 years ago, give or take, and has evolved on separate tracks with communication between those two tracks, like you mentioned. Right. Well, I, and I think this is, uh, there's, uh, I, I don't know how to, let's see, I'm trying to think of the, the proper way to say this when you talk about politics and language, you know, uh, uh, there's the, the famous uh, dictum uh, that, uh, you know, uh, a uh, what is it? A language is a dialect with an army and a navy, mm-hmm. right? So that if so that you get to be a language if you've got power, mm-hmm. right? And so even and 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 most linguists are aware of this, and yet even in our own way of describing language, we still tend to. I, I will give you an example. I worked on the. Uh, uh, the BDLP, uh, the the Banque de Données uh, Lexicographique, uh, Lexicographique pan, pan Francophone, which is 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 there to sort of describe in a database the varieties, the lexical variety within uh, the Francophone world and representing various areas of the world. And uh, I remember at one of the very first meetings, of course, we talked about. Um, I'm trying to think of the the term that it was. Well, I mean, if you talk about what's an archaisma, right? Okay, I mean, archaisma, archaic forms. Well, it's only archaic if you don't use it anymore, right? right? So, (laughs) so if I say, you know, chevret, and well, they they wanted to mark this archaisma. Well, yeah, for for y'all, it's an archaisma, but for for us, it's not archaic at all. It's the word that we still use to describe describe shrimp. Right. Whereas if, if, and by the same token, if we come up with a new way of conjugating verbs or a new, a new form, then it's called a deformation, right? It's a, it's deformed, but it's only deformed <laughs> if you, if you're not the person who, right. who uses it. it for us, right. it's just, it was just an, it's an innovation. It's a, you know, a new word. So even within linguistics, there is a sort of a, uh, I- implicit judgment about right. about lexical choices. You know. Well, this was this this is the first thing I want to talk to you about. Then, um, having spoken and knowing personally several of the people on the dictionary, mm-hmm. and even uh, me and Doctor Ansley talked about this a few minutes ago. There were some long discussions and disagreements on the ways that y'all were going to decide to spell these words. Oh, absolutely. And there, and so these questions come in. Like he mentioned to me, the fact that it's not, uh, you know, in, in Cajun French, it's not je vais, it's je vais. Mm-hmm. Except that you decided to keep the S, but drop, took out the, the I because of the pronunciation. And there were lots of factors that went into that. I know that there were, at least what I've been told, is some wanted to be very phonetic in the in the the trans and the, mm-hmm. and the give and the spelling of the words. Some wanted to be more traditional, but it seems to me, from what Doctor Osley told me, is y'all kind of split the difference. Well, that's it. We had to come to things that we could all live with. And I will tell you, the Java discussion, which and and it sounds weird to say this, but this took place over several years. This wasn't oh, like right. this wasn't right. like at one five day right. meeting. This was over several years. But I will tell you my argument and 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 the way it started for me and the reason I argued for the S was simply. 
at that time I was, uh, I had, I had worked, um, as a, uh, as the coordinator of French immersion programs in Louisiana. And as a result of that, I attended several conferences in Canada and, uh, visited classrooms in Canada. And I remember one day walking into a classroom because you, as a teacher, you're always looking for ways to simplify and find mnemonic devices for kids, right? And I'm, I'm not a linguist by training. I am a, I'm a foreign language teacher. So anyway, I'm in this classroom and it was, I guess maybe fourth grade. I don't know. And there is a, there's a big, uh, sort of a, tableau up on the wall and when they're when they're trying to teach kids conjugation and we're not talking about uh regular er verbs in the present tense they're talking about all conjugation because these kids can speak right they just need to learn how to spell what they're speaking so what they said was and i I saw this it was like okay first person singular sexy i saw s-e-x-i sexy verbs now I start. Well, wait. I started. I I, let me tell you. I will tell you what it means. This is this is very simple. You cannot think. There is not. There is not one verb, not one verb in the French language, in any tense, in any mood, any verb, that's conjugated in the first person singular that does not end in either s, e, x, or i. That's it. That's it. So. Jva without the S was not an option because it just did not belong in this family. And that's how I felt about it. Why would we create the only verb <laughs> that, you know, why not? That the, that S belonged there. Um, well, I, and I even asked him, I said, well, do you say Javale or Javazale? He said, no, it's Javale. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't even in there for that reason. No. But it's in there to maintain, it, 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 it keeps the history. It, it represents the, the pronunciation, but it also keeps the history. Right. And those sorts of decisions are, um, sometimes they're, they're more aesthetic than, than anything else. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, there are, there were, there were choices that we made that frankly just had to do with personal preference. There were things to be argued. Um, uh, and there were these sort of odd, um, Odd coincidences. For example, um, we have the problem of uh, of the the group of verbs, uh, and I don't know. I think the French call them is are they the second group of ir verbs? The verbs like offrir, couvrir, mm-hmm. okay, which of course in Louisiana French are n- they are not. They are they are perceived as couvert, offert, okay. Is and so the question is, we knew how to spell the past participle couvert, c o u v e r t. Okay, but how do you spell the infinitive? Now, some people because they're pronouncing the infinitive couvert. Right. Uh, oh. So right. So here's so that so some people would say, oh, well, obviously what happened is it's a reanalyse. It's it, it was a back formation from from the past the past participle to the to an infinitive. Well, maybe, but I haven't seen the proof for or against. Right. And even so, there and and this was again my argument. There are no infinitives that end in t they've got to end in r or e you know and so give so then we kind of we we narrowed it down we took out the past participle uvad like the the ert ending as a possibility for covering the infinitive and we came up with uh an e accent aigu re 
but then th- that was sort of bothersome. There was something about having that accent aigu at the end there that just didn't seem right. So then we ended up with the double R. But you see, we and, and then some people said, well, after all, if we could just have it end in R and then just say you pronounce it because af- because we know that final consonants at some point in the history of Louisiana were pronounced, or history of French, not just Louisiana, but history of French were pronounced true. But here's the problem. Couvet is a verb. Right, because ER is already an ending for the ER verb. Well, that's right. And, then, and couvet not only is a verb, but it's a verb that Cajuns know. That's what a chicken does when she sits on her nest. And so we couldn't take... A, a word that was so common and make it already problematic. So then we came up with another solution. So sometimes it was very, you know, think even the pu plu difference, the idea of pu as no longer, the negative. Um, you know, some people wanted the apostrophe, some people didn't. Um, I, I wanted it out. I mean, I didn't want it out. It bothered me, the P-U-S because it, then it was pus, and you know it was like th- those sorts of things. Just it was there was an aesthetic there that bothered right. me, right? Right. right. Yeah. So you know those those it, lots of things play in that are not always necessarily um, plain. Well, and what scientific are, sort of considerations. One of the things that I think everybody would agree on is you're trying to describe what's being said, and that's one of the distinctions that I wanted to point out for the audience when you're creating a dictionary. You're not creating a standard. You're trying to describe what people are saying and represent what's being said right. on the field, so to well, speak. Well, now that is what our dictionary does. And, right. and I think it's important to, to, to point out that there are dictionaries that are prescriptive. They tell you they will make judgments. I mean, what's sort of ironic is that very often um, people who study the history of language, in order to discover how language used to be, they go to these sorts of documents. Right. They find out because when people say, don't say this. Which means somebody was trying to say that. I'll give you a perfect (laughs) example. In uh, um, uh, Pardeg's dictionary, he, and he doesn't do this a lot, but every, and of course it's, it's very, um, you know, he was an iconoclast. He had his ideas about certain things, but he, he, he took the time out, for example, under the word cardboard, he has carton. And then he has in parentheses, do not say caltron. Well, immediately what that tells you, of course, is that lots of people down here say caltron because they, otherwise he could have listed a million things that you should not say, right? Um, but um, having said that, okay, so his dictionary has some prescriptive elements in it. Our dictionary, our intention was not to create a prescriptive dictionary. It was to describe the state of the language as it was. Now, having said that, I have to tell you that even I, six years down the line, when I want to decide how to spell something when I'm writing in Louisiana French, I go to the dictionary because <laughs> because it's you go it, to your own dictionary. <laughs> it is a, it is a touchstone and uh-huh. and and it's sort of veut ou veut pas, even if it's not intentional. Right. Because it, it becomes the authoritative source because there's nothing else. Right. And I will tell you, it's also dangerous, and this is what people re- need to recognize, is that the, 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 or fact, the important corollary or non-corollary to this, I guess, is that people need to know that we had to stop somewhere. We were afraid that everybody who spoke French was going to die before we finished the damn thing, right? So, so we get it down. 
um, which means it was a it was a job that even after eleven years was still not finished. And what that also means is that if you say something in your community and it's not in the dictionary, that doesn't mean it's not a good Louisiana French word. And that's very important for people to understand. We were observing what we saw and documenting what we saw, but we didn't see everything. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, that's a good point. <clears throat> and closely remember to check out the show notes at weeklylinguist.com. There you will find further information about this episode. Like more information about the guest, a selected bibliography, and any links mentioned in this episode. As the saying goes, if you enjoyed the podcast, tell a friend. If you didn't, tell us. You can tell a friend by rating us five stars on iTunes and by writing a glowing endorsement in the reviews. Don't forget to subscribe when you're done and follow us on Instagram or Twitter at Weekly Linguist. For any feedback, positive or criti- critical, <laughs> write to us at podcast at weeklylinguist.com. Tell us what you think, what we can do better, or even suggest a topic, uh, a topic for an upcoming episode. <laughs>